Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged with me, Ellie Duncan, Head of Content at Open Banking Expo. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined once again in the podcast studio by Sabah Sharif, Head of New Product Development and Corporate Strategy at Simcor. Sabah was on the podcast recently talking all about a made-in-Canada open banking system. We discussed then the adoption of open banking in Canada and why trust, security and privacy are so critical to its success. Well, today Sabah is back to expand on that discussion She's going to be discussing the dual requirements of efficiency and scalability in establishing a uniquely Canadian open banking model. Welcome once again to the podcast, Sabah. Thank you very much, Ellie. It's great to be here again. Well, let's dive straight in with the first question. Um, And in fact, really, before we get going on the topic, I think it's always helpful for our listeners to hear more about um, Simcor. They may not be familiar with your organization, of course. So can you give us some background, please? Yeah, for sure. So Simcor has been around for over 25 years, actually, in Canada. We're a B2B organization, and we help uh, organizations of all sizes uh, with some of their core business processes and solutions and problems that they are looking to get addressed. So we provide uh, solutions for them related to customer communications, payment processing, fraud prevention and detection, a lot of the things that they could do themselves, but hey, it makes sense to use an organization like Simcor to not only set that up, but run it on an ongoing basis. Great. And um, well, with that in mind, let's talk a bit more about um, two really important points here. It's certainly widely recognized how important trust and security are for open banking. But why do you think uh, that they are considered kind of table stakes, if you if you like? Yeah, for sure, Ellie. And, and I think this is so key because we have to look at the original drivers behind open banking. And I think there, it really gets broken down to three main things. This was about, obviously, about data ownership, you know, considerations around privacy. What are my rights as a customer? It was about driving innovation. And it was intended to address real security concerns that exist in the current ecosystem with things like screen scraping and lack of clarity around, you know, who can access my data? What can they do with uh, with it? What should they do when they've accessed it? So if those were some of the original drivers, um, a lot of that is about trust and security. When you look at that customer experience and who they're willing to share their data with, when you look at the concerns of what could happen if something goes bump in the middle of the night, so they were table stakes behind the drivers of open banking. And I think anything that puts those at further risks is, is really not even an option. Um, and it, if you look at maybe some of the points of vulnerability of what could potentially go wrong, you think of the impact that that could have on consumers, not just individuals, but widely. We are in an environment where a lot of the security breaches and the risks that occur, fraud issues that occur, are not so much by individuals, they're by state actors, thereby organized crime. And while open banking doesn't necessarily create, I would say, out of the gate an additional vulnerability, it can in some cases if the data is accessed or stored to the third party and they're not being uh, as careful as they should be uh, with that data, it could create another point of vulnerability. So it could accelerate and exacerbate what are existing issues, existing compromised accounts being used to access customer data. 
And in an open baking ecosystem, if it's not done appropriately, you don't necessarily know where that traffic is coming from. You already don't necessarily know where that traffic is coming from. Because that's why it's important to have sanctioned and accredited entities going in. Um, if that is, is compromised, it can have impacts not just on you and me, but entire financial ecosystems. And, and so that's why it's, it's table stakes uh, in order to just engender the trust for people to leverage the system and move towards uh, more safe and secure methods of data sharing, but also not to, not to put any of that at risk at once that's once that actually is actually done. Thanks, Saba. So many really important um, points there. And, and let's delve into efficiency now, if, if you like. Um, first of all, why is it important to consider efficiency within a Canadian open banking framework? Yeah, Ali, I love this question because it's, um, you know, when people think of efficiency and they, they think of banking, um, you know, they're like, okay, well, there's lots of money money out there. Why are we talking? Why are we even having this conversation? You know, for me, it's a lot about it. This is about the opportunity cost. Um, while the effort spent on open banking is necessary, we should consider how we spend it and whether or not those things are incremental or value added or are they commoditized activities. If I look at the costs in the in the UK as an example, which I, you know you would be much more familiar with, but um, you know in 2020 the operating costs for the OBIE were roughly 51 million dollars Canadian. That's for the special purpose entity that was set up to you know help establish the standards and create the directory, manage the directory, etc. That was down from 62 million the prior year. And those are costs that are allocated to the nine largest F, um, uh, FIs in in that market on top of this expenditure that they had internally to stand up their APIs and manage those APIs. So they're necessary costs, but they're, they can be done, I think, in a much more effective and efficient way. So when I think of efficiency, it's where do we actually want to spend the money and how do we want to spend it uh, in order to actually drive value back to that end consumer? So are we going to all spend the same money or similar money on similar things? Or are we going to allocate our dollars and our effort and our scarcity of resources? Because we live in a society today where talent is not easy to acquire or to retain. Do we spend that on the things that are exciting, the innovations and the end customer experience, which is where a lot of folks want to go, right? That's that's the activity that they want to spend their time on, even when you're working in an organization. So I think efficiency and effectiveness and, and again, opportunity cost is really important for us to consider in the in this ecosystem. Can we done right, can we shorten that time frame to getting to scale? Uh, and can we do so in a way where the dollars are, are probably spent, but spent in a different way and for better and different outcomes? And that's, I think, why why efficiency is so important as we look at the Canadian open banking framework. Well, it's interesting there that you, you mentioned the UK. It kind of leads nicely onto my next question, which is all about what what have you seen in, in other markets, I suppose? And, and are there some lessons that you can learn sort of from other geographies uh, that can sort of apply to Canada? I mean, perhaps you've already spoken a bit about uh, there, obviously, about the UK. Any other markets that spring to mind? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question because it, it, a lot of the other markets are driven by <clears throat> the needs of that market. And I think that's always important to understand. So to your point in the UK, one of the you know, originating uh, markets for open banking, obviously driven by different needs to uh, drive innovation, transparency, communications, etc. You start to look at others, and I see an evolution as we go across uh, across the world. So Australia focused more on customer data rights and more globally than just looking at banking in general. And that's always been one of my, you know, my thoughts on open banking is we're talking about open banking, but we probably shouldn't just relegate this to open banking. We should look at customer data rights more broadly. Why is my 
uh, access to data only limited uh, to, to banking data or financial data. How can we expand on that? So I like the Australian approach from that perspective. <clears throat> you then start to look at the Brazilian and Singaporean markets. And I think that's also very interesting because it's it's the took a little bit of the blend and each market has learned from the prior market and taken the best pieces and tried to evolve on it and build upon that. So in those markets, you see more of a hybrid solution coming into place where, you know, in Brazil, they, they've set um, guidelines and they've kind of set standards uh, and they will regulate if they have to. And they've kind of put that thread out there is that if it's necessary, they'll put in the standards, they, they will actually do that. But they're allowing the market to take on activities such as even, you know, accreditation, as an example, once those guidelines have been set. And Singapore has been very much about the government setting up an infrastructure and an ecosystem for them uh, through the Monetary Authority of Singapore that actually encourages innovation, encourages the industry and the market to take these activities on. The U.S., I think, is, is very similar to Canada in that it's been largely market driven. Uh, any activities that we see there outside of the, the presidential directive have still been based on organizations setting up their bilaterals, connecting directly based on whatever incentives have been put in place for them to um, initiate those activities. So you're seeing this is, is very much a, uh, a mix, but I would say an evolution from market to market. And I think there's tons of lessons that we can learn there. So, you know, we have the benefit in Canada of taking a little bit from one and a little bit from another uh, and learning from that and evolving accordingly. So I don't see us indexing heavily towards a very uh, regulated market. I don't think any of the communications or the advisory committee report has indicated that. I do see us having a opportunity for industry to continue to evolve on things that we've already seen. You know, Canadian institutions have already stood up and stood behind both fintechs and, and banks behind FDX Canada, as an example. So they're already moving on standards. There's great industry dialogue and encourage those who aren't already, you know, members of FDX to continue to, to join uh, and engage there. Because I think there's there's lots to be done uh, where the industry can take a role. I think that's the real opportunity for us. You continue to see this evolution from one extreme to more of a hybrid model. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's an opportunity for us to consider in Canada, for sure. Oh, well, I'm sure equally other other markets will be watching what you do in Canada really closely. Um, and something else that that uh, I'd like to talk about now is is scalability. So, um, Savile, would you consider scalability another critical area for consideration in, in Canada's open banking system? And, and if so, why? Why is it so important? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Ellie, because I, I, again, I look at we have the benefit of data from other uh, other jurisdictions to look at. And pretty much across the board, it's been a bit of a, let's use a Canadian analogy, it's been a hockey stick, right? The initial calls are not great. They're not super exciting. Um, but that takes about two to three years for that stick to curve up and to see a increase in the, in, in the trajectory of API calls as just an, as an example. So again, there were about 400 million calls in the UK in 2020. That more than doubled two years later, and that's during the pandemic. Uh, so you can see this great increase in the, in the volume. And, and without the ability to scale towards that, uh, I think there there's, can certainly be challenges. So it's important to recognize it's not going to be overwhelming in the first probably couple of years. You've got some time, but it's it's going to pick up. And it, these are just... Yeah, the reality is they, the types, these types of volumes you see in a lot, lot of other applications and a lot of um, other uh, 
uh, you know, areas we talk about Google and Facebook and those things, but they're not necessarily what you see in, in financial services. So it could become overwhelming. So we need to be able to prepare for that. And those volumes that I'm talking about are actually just basic data. The majority of those calls actually came from because the account information use case, right? Your basic transaction data, your balances, not even payments. Payments data was there, uh, but it's not overwhelming. So scalability, the ability to handle that is going to be very important over time, especially if we grow out of those first sets of use cases into things like open finance or premium APIs. You need to be able to prepare for the same or similar similar type of trajectory in other use cases. I think in addition to scalability, Ali, um, I'm going to maybe touch on uh, the the importance of um, stability because I think this is really really key to your first question. I'll go back to the you know trust and uh, and security. Stability is equally important uh, in an environment. If I look at it from a data recipient or a fintech perspective, uh, there's a real issue today with uh, with app abandonment across the board, right? So by some estimates, app abandonment is about fifty percent after just a day of use. So as a fintech, you're already dealing with this concern of how do you keep users using your application and getting value from your application, especially if it is something like a personal financial management app that they'll use probably on a a consistent basis. The reality is unless it's integral to your daily life, or or at least maybe questionably integral, like my family's WhatsApp group is, um, these applications are often clutter. Um, and so stability in an open banking system is absolutely important. And it's important that those calls that the fintechs make, they can happen and they can happen, you know, with, um, uh, with both speed uh, and consistency. Otherwise, you're just going to drive that number, which is already uh, pretty fragile. You drive that abandonment rate up. And so I think you got to look at uh, both stability and scalability together as key underpinnings of, a, of an open banking ecosystem. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's important to talk about stability when, when you're talking about scalability. Absolutely, and and something that has come up a little bit, but I think is is worth kind of um, talking more about now. Sabah is 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 cost. So, you know, perhaps you referred to there some of the hurdles that banks and other financial institutions face in terms of costs. So, are there some strategies that you think perhaps could alleviate, or that you'd recommend to help alleviate these challenges? Yeah, for sure, Ellie. So I think the you know uh, the the main drivers of the cost are going to be twofold. One is going to be on the technology end, and the other I think is operational. So on the technology end, it's pretty straightforward. It's setting up the access to this data and setting it up in in a way that is uh, managed on an ongoing basis appropriately uh, and with the appropriate amount of security. So those are not insignificant costs to be borne. And I think it can be challenging for a financial institution. I've certainly had conversations with organizations that are like, well, what do we do now? You know, do we wait 18 months till the the things are kind of more stabilized and figured out in Canada? Do we get ahead of ourselves? And I think it's it's a bit of a balance. You don't want to get too far ahead of yourself. But I do think, as I mentioned, with with organizations like FDX, there are um, organizations that you can uh, look to to provide you support and guidance on, on what to do. That initial cost of not only setting up your APIs, I think, is, is important to consider on how you can leverage support and assistance from organizations that that do this on an ongoing basis. And I'm not necessarily saying get it behind your firewalls and setting up those APIs, but I'm going to make an estimate that you'll probably get, most organizations probably get about 80% of the way there. Even if there was a universal standard for APIs, probably get about 80% of the way. Some will be less, some will be more. 
you want to spend the money on the last 20, the next 20% figuring out yourself, or this is an area that we've seen certainly that organizations can take on. So you get about as far as you can, and there are organizations that will take that work on for you. So that, that'd be like manage your costs appropriately. Um, there are certain things that you got to do that are table stakes, but leverage partners that can look at this and get you the rest of the way there. And then from an operational perspective, um, things that, you know, you don't uh, typically hear about, but uh, service level management and just managing those those connections. What if something has gone wrong? The dispute management um, activities, even if standards are set, liability obligations are set elsewhere, you still have to deal with the operational headache of figuring out where did it happen? Who did it happen with? How do I report on this? How do I deal with it? How do I speak to the customer? So again, I think those are opportunities where I would be looking at, you know, are there organizations out there that can that can help and that can take that burden on? Can you kind of outsource a little bit of that activity um, while still ultimately maintaining, uh, you know, retaining control uh, of those types, types of asks? So from a cost perspective, I think there are ways to avoid the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent elsewhere. One, by just the actions that the government takes, which is hopefully not overly prescriptive and overly restrictive. Um, leverage entities that already exist in Canada. There are several organizations that already exist that can help in pockets of this, even if it is something as simple as supporting the accreditation or attestation processes. But also from an organization perspective, don't go too far, don't go too fast, and don't assume you have to do everything yourself with you might maybe a simpler way of answering that question. Some really valuable uh, tips there, I think. And um, look, I think it's, is it, without a doubt, um, most most countries recognise that open banking offers potential. So in your view, Sabo, what are the most promising near-term opportunities that an open banking ecosystem offers in Canada? Yeah, I think the, the near-term ones are have already been um, certainly talked about in many, many use cases. It's the standard use cases that you're going to see related to personal financial management and how do we extend that more broadly, um, you know, lending adjudication use cases. And for me, that gets really interesting when you when you start to think of something like financial inclusion. Uh, so I think there's some some basics that you could you could do here. Uh, but I think there's lots of greater opportunity um, further out. Yeah, we got to get the table stakes done here for this initial set of use cases. It's just, hey, listen, I just need it to be easier to share my data with my accountant. Um, you know, I would like to be able to see all my information, financial information in one place. It should be easier. I shouldn't have to walk into a bank every time I have to apply for a loan. And those are the natural kind of near-term use cases that uh, that this the type of data that we're talking about sharing early days uh, in Canada would would certainly uh, bring to bear. Well, look, I'm going to ask you to, to look a bit further out, if, if possible. I know um, forecasts and predictions are always hard to make, but you know, if implemented properly, uh, what do you see as sort of the potential promise that open banking can help to unlock within the Canadian market? Yeah, I love this question, uh, Ali, because uh, you know, I, I think the examples that I just shared, there's one that I think is really neat and interesting, and in specific to Canada. Um, so Canada is just like many uh, countries, one that is actually founded on, on immigration. Um, and it was interesting to see that actually last year we recognized over 400,000 new permanent residents in Canada. That's the most new residents recognized since 1913. Wow. It's almost doubled from just a couple of years prior to the pandemic. And those individuals, those new to Canada, or a lot of them were here and they, they converted over to permanent residence after a period of time. 
but they're supporting critical industries like healthcare, um, which is you know top of mind for everyone. So there are a lot of them are doctors and nurses coming and supporting physiotherapists, et cetera, coming to support our economy. That type of influence to be able to bring new immigrants in here and recognize them and support them as they move their financial um, you know, uh, holdings and, and, and get recognized in the Canadian ecosystem has been a challenge all along. It's the under, it's the, it's the new to Canada has been a challenge for financial institutions and organizations to recognize and to support um, because you don't have that history. You don't have that knowledge about them. So if I was to look out into my crystal ball, I talked about financial inclusion from just a Canadian perspective of just, hey, I'd just like you to know more about me. Trust me a little bit more easily based on what you see me doing in Canada. What if we could do this more globally? What if these open banking ecosystems that are being set up in each jurisdiction could communicate with each other um, so that when you are a country like Canada that is, you know, so reliant um, on uh, this immigration to help fuel our population growth and our economy, how can we make it easier for those um, individuals to be set up so that they are more effective right out of the gate or earlier in their in their history in, in, in this uh, in this country? And so this maybe global ability, because we say we're a global economy, this global ability to share data and to reduce the friction in my daily financial financial lives, especially if I'm making that decision to, to move to a new country. I think that's one of the, of the longer term opportunities is inclusion uh, at a broader scale and more global scale could be very, very interesting. And, and one of the hopes that I would have as we as we um, open banking forward. Well, that's that's a really positive kind of vision for the future to end on there, I think, Saba. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast again and for expanding on on um, what you see as a vision, really, for open banking in Canada. It's, it's great to have you on. Thank you, Ellie. It was great to be here again. Thanks once again to Saba for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you wanted to listen back to the first episode in which I spoke to Saba about building a made in Canada open banking system, then simply go to the on demand section of openbankingexpo.com where you'll find all our podcast episodes in the series. Until next time, goodbye for now.